Well, let's go with the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, now as we come to this time of opening up your word, Lord, pray that you would give us clarity of thought. Clear our minds, clear our hearts, Lord, to hear your word. To allow your word to move within us, to change us, to transform us. So that we might become more like Jesus. Lord, let us see you. Let us see you today. Through your word. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we're looking at verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you don't have your Bible, you can turn with me to in the Pew Bible there in front of you to page 894. Page 894 in the Pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible at home, uh, then please take that, that copy of God's Word as, a gift, as our gift to you. We want you to have that, and we want you to have God's Word available to read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Today we're looking at God's folly, God's folly and the cross, and particularly the message of the cross. You know, in the world, factionism abounds. Factionism abounds. There's, uh, we talked about this some last week, but we have in our world today, there's Republicans and Democrats, right? conservatives, liberals, there's blacks and whites, there's rich and poor. I mean, we can see all kinds of divisions in the world. Uh, many different people groups, as we saw earlier in the children's message. It's all kinds of divisions, all kinds of ways that we could uh, have factions in our world. But despite all of the world's factionalism, there is no room for factions within God's church. For in God's eyes, there are no Democrats and Republicans. There's no liberal, liberals and conservatives. There's no black and white. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's it. That's all there is. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And that's what we see in our text today. There's no other groups. That's it. No other. There are those who, uh, the way that these two groups are distinguished is one group responds positively to the message of the cross and another group just responds negatively to the message of the cross that's how those two groups are distinguished that's how the world is divided into those two those who trust the gospel and the gospel is power and those who reject the gospel to which the gospel is foolishness in their sight so we're going to see that today and we're, that's going to be the two our two main points here just looking at those two people groups, those two kinds of people who live in the world. Now, as we've been looking at this, Paul's focus, as I said last week, is on, the uni on unity within the church. 
That's his focus right on down through chapter thir- uh, the third chapter of, of this, song, or this, uh, excuse me, this letter. And so his focus is on unity. Factionalism is threatening the unity in this church, the Corinthian church. And so you remember last week we had those groups. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I pa- follow Cephas or Peter. All of these people are saying, I follow this person. They're dividing up into their groups, right? And they're boasting in the teacher that they are following. And it's causing division and conflict within the church. And so Paul is writing to address this conflict. He says, no, there's no room for factions in the church. There's no room for it. There are only two divisions in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And in the church, it should only be one group. Those who are being saved. Factionalism is caused by pride. I mean, that's at the root of it. That's at the root of most sin. Pride. Pride. It's human pride. But God's method of salvation from start to finish destroys human pride. It brings us into humility at the foot of Christ's cross. We'll see over the course of the next three messages, not just today, but the next three messages, and we'll see this, how God destroys human pride through the folly of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you found your place there, 1 Corinthians, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. As Paul says, opening up this paragraph, he he lays out his thesis statement for this paragraph right at the beginning, actually for the next three paragraphs, and he talks about the folly of, of the cross. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he notes here that there's only two groups in the world. Now, while the Corinthians are trying to divide up in all of these different groups within the church, Paul says, no, there's only two groups in the whole world. 
and you should belong to one of them. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's it. How they just respond to the gospel. The word of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, notice what he says there. Those who are perishing. It's not those who will perish. They are perishing. Those to which the, the, the message of the cross, the word of the cross is foolishness, Scripture says they are now in the process of perishing. They're in the process of perishing, even now. They're already feeling the effects of their perishing. As we look at this, we see, uh, as Paul goes on and explains it, he gets into it a little bit more. We see here, first of all, that, um, that this perishing, this foolishness, this foolish response to the gospel is God's judgment on the world's wisdom. This rejection of the gospel, this seeing the gospel as foolishness, it's actually God's judgment upon the world's wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Uh, Paul says this is judgment fulfilled. This is judgment fulfilled. That's why he's quoting Scripture here. Thus it is written. This is what has already been written. God has already told us this was going to take place. Now this passage that Paul is quoting here is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Isaiah 29, 14. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14 reads, Therefore, I will again do... Well, let me back up a, a minute. This is taking place in a, a prophecy of judgment. A prophecy of judgment. God is pronouncing woes upon nations and upon nations and upon nations. And now he gets to Jerusalem. And now he's pronouncing a woe, a judgment upon Jerusalem. If you back up a little bit, 29 verse 13, it says, And Lord, the Lord said, Because this people draws near with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, while their heart, hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wondrous things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and here's Paul's quote, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, think about this passage a bit. This passage, is, is, it's got messianic overtones to it. If you go back and look in the, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, you begin to notice this. Verse 14 has there, uh, I will again do wonderful things with them. Notice that word, wonderful. Wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. In the book of Isaiah, that word wonder has, has messianic overtones. The first place that we see it is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And y'all all, all are familiar with this. You all are familiar with this. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6 reads, well, let me get there. 
For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah who would come would be called Wonderful Counselor. Then flipping back over to chapter 28, verse 29, here we see this same theme coming up. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And now when he comes to pronounce this woe, he's saying that this will take place in the messianic period through the Messiah. I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonders. This is coming through the the wonderful counselor who is to come. The mighty God, the prince of priests who will come. And when he comes, the wisdom of their wise shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning I will thwart. Paul saying this is a fulfillment of prophecy. As these people, as the Jews and the Gentiles both come and they hear the message of the gospel and they reject the gospel message when they say it's foolishness to me. You're talking foolishness. That's rubbish. That is a judgment upon them. That is a judgment of God upon them. And they're piling the judgment of God upon themselves. So it is the judgment of God fulfilled, but it's also righteous judgment. It is a righteous judgment. Uh, Notice what he goes on to say in verse 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, watch this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see, we have in Scripture, Scripture tells us, in fact, let's go there, Romans Romans tells us that all that can be known about God, we can know God through the things of the world. We can go out in creation and see enough evidence of God to say there is a God in heaven who deserves our worship. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to them. When you see creation, when you see the magnificence of creation, when you dwell on the the complexity of even the human form, you should say that there is an intelligent designer out there, there's an intelligent being out there who had to have done this. There's no way this could happen by mistake, by an accident. But that's not what happens, is it? The world rejects what they see. And they deny the truth about God. For Picking up in verse 20 again. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, that's what takes place when, when we in our sin look out at creation and we see the complexity of creation. We don't say, what a wonderful God, not in our natural state. We do as Christians, but in our natural state, we don't look at the world and say, oh, what a wonderful God. We look at the world and say, oh, what a big mess. What a wonderful accident. That's the very basis of evolutionary theory, isn't it? That's the whole basis of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory is a way to get rid of God, to kill God off, to, to get him off of the, the playing field. So, so you take it back down to, to evolution, all the way back down to the moment of, of life. Where does life come from? I mean, they say that we were, we were evolved from the apes and on and on like that, and the apes came from the fish and all the way. But you back it all the way up. Where did life begin? And according to evolutionary theory, they play it off as fact, right? Evolution fact, because if you don't believe it, then you're just crazy, right? You're some kind of fundamentalist, crazy religious person. So they try to pass it off as fact, but when you get down to it, evolutionary theory, what does it say? There was a, a premortal ooze, right? There was a lake. There was a premortal lake of all this kind of ooze and mess, and, and it had all of the ingredients to create that first single-cell organism. This is evolutionary theory. This is what they teach in, in college and universities. There was this primordial ooze, all, the, all of the stuff there, all the proteins, everything that was necessary to, for life to begin was there. And by chance, all of those elements came, right, came together just right in just the right moment of time, and, and they came together, and boom, life began. It was an accident. No God, just an accident. And then continue that. Then that single-cell organism that was created just by chance then had to have other properties come in and some other kind of uh, genetic deformities take place to make a, a two-celled organism. On and on and on until you get a complex organism like the human being. And all of this was by chance. It was by, uh, by, by, uh, by chance that our, these DNA molecules kind of got deformed and messed up and, and created good genes and, and good things, good characteristics, so that what we get now is a complex human being. That's evolutionary theory, kind of in a nutshell. I mean, it's more complex than that, but that's it in a nutshell. That's where life began by chance. And it all developed all the way up to where we are today. Now, you can't reproduce that in a peach tree dish. And there has not been any other um, observable macroevolutionary events take place. You, you see, you see uh, species going out of existence, right? We see species dying off. And going out of existence, but we have not seen new species come into being. Oh, we can breed, you know, a Labrador and a 
poodle and get a labradoodle, but that's the same species, right? We can't create a new species. We can't do that. We haven't seen that take place. That has been, not been observed ever. But yet, the evolutionists will say, well, that's fact. I mean, that's just the way it is. And if you don't believe the evolutionary theory, then you're crazy. But when we look at creation, we look at the complexity of it. The most logical explanation for creation being in existence is there was a God who is eternal, a spiritual God who is eternal, who was so powerful that he could say, let there be life, and there was life. But that's not a good enough theory. That's not good enough because then we've got to bow to that God. If we have a God who created us, then he has to be Lord over us. He has to be master over us. We have to bow to him because he is our maker. See, mankind, don't want that we don't want to go there. Mankind does not want to go there. We want to be God of our own being. So if there's no God and there's no purpose for our existence, then we can be God of our, our domain. And so the world denies God. And because the world denied God in our flesh, the world in its flesh denies God, denies the wisdom of God, viewing it in creation, it pleased God through the folly of the cross to save those who would trust him. The folly of the cross, the word of the cross is judgment upon the world's wisdom but it's also, we see in the, the word of the cross, we see the world's rejection of God's wisdom. It, we see the world's rejection of God's wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 22, 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. You see, notice he says here that, that it's foolishness because Jews demand signs while Greeks demand wisdom. So he's looking at the two groups of people, the main groups of people in his day and time, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews, they, they sought signs. Now, what he means by that, they sought signs of the Messiah to come. They were expecting a Messiah who would come and deliver them from Roman oppression. They were looking for a political Messiah, one that would take control right then and right there, who would rise up out of the ranks of the line of David and destroy the Romans. They were looking for powerful signs, signs that would mean the end of the Roman Empire. They were looking for those kinds of signs. So when Jesus came healing people, healing the leper, and raising people from the dead, and feeding the 5,000, they rejected those signs because those weren't the signs they were looking for. They were looking for signs, but not the ones that God gave them. The Greeks, on the other hand, they're seeking wisdom. They're seeking wisdom. They're looking for a wise, a wise emperor, 
a Caesar who would come and, and take control of things and through his wisdom lead them into greatness. They were looking for wisdom. This was the, the age of the great philosophers, right? And so they were looking for wisdom. Isn't that the way the world works? Isn't that the way the world works? We don't look for meek and mild leaders to lead us into the future. No, we look for the strong man or the strong woman who can stand up to the world and, and charge us into the future. We're looking for our conqueror. We're looking for someone who can stand up to bullies, right? Stand up to the opposition. That's what the world looks for. The world is looking for a great a king, a great ruler who will rule with strength. So when you come and say, the Messiah is a crucified Messiah who died on a cross, who came in weakness and frailty, the world says, that's foolishness. You're going to follow a crucified Savior? That's foolishness. The world doesn't want to crucified savior they want a powerful savior a strong savior this is uh, exemplified in one of the writings of one of the early church fathers one of the early church fathers named justin martyr he had this little dialogue this conversation with trifo a, a jewish man and and the whole the whole writing there is a it, it kind of captures this dialogue between Judah, uh, Justin Martyr and Trifo. But they come to one point where Justin Martyr is trying to convince Trifo that, that Jesus is the Christ. And he begins to, to show him Jesus, reveal to him Jesus, the attributes of Jesus in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And after Justin Martyr, after Justin comes and, and explains it all, lays it all out there for Trifo, Trifo responds like this. These and such like scriptures, sir, compel us to wait for him who, as son of man, receives from the ancient of days the everlasting kingdom. But this so-called so Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious, so much so that the last curse, conta the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him, for he was crucified. When we say we worship a crucified Savior for the world, that's like saying we, 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 we worship one who was given lethal injection. We worship one who was sent to the electric chair. And the world says that's foolishness. That's crazy. That's insane. How can you trust in that? But as Paul points out here, the wisdom of, of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Today, many are looking for a powerful leader to bring peace to the world. They're looking for a powerful, charismatic leader to, to take the world into a, a time of peace and restoration and harmony and all of these things. 
Many of them hope in, in science. They're, they're looking to science to be that deliverer. And I love science. I appreciate medicine. I appreciate technology. I appreciate computers and all of those things. But let me tell you, there's not a leader in the wor- alive in the world today who will give us the salvation we need. Science, as great as it is, is not going to give us the salvation we need. There is only one Savior, and He's been crucified and raised again, Jesus Christ. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, second, the message of the cross is power to those who are being saved. The message of the cross is power to those who are being saved. Now all of us, most all of us, I'm assuming, drove here today. And you got in your vehicle, and the vehicle has all kinds of parts, right? It has wheels, it has doors, it has windows, it has a windshield, windshield wipers, all of these different parts to it. But you would not have been able to make it here if you did not have a motor in that car. And we talk about a motor having horsepower, right? It's the power that drives the vehicle. And the message of the cross is the power of God. It's what drives our salvation. There is no salvation outside of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross is, is God's word to us. It's our message. It's our salvation. Now, Paul kind of gives us some characteristics of this word of the cross. First of all, we see here that God declares the cross. God declares the cross. Notice what he says in verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, those, those who believe. Look at that word preach there. That word preach would have been very, um, it would have caught the Corinthians' eye. Because in Corinth, they looked for these orators, these uh, skilled orators to come by with their, their great philosophies and with words of eloquent wisdom, lay out these prophets or these philosophies uh, for people to kind of embrace. And so they look for that rhetorical skill. I mean, that they learn from Aristotle, right? They learn from his uh, rhetoric, how to speak. And so that's what they look for. They look for this eloquence in speech. And Paul says, no, 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 we come, we preach the message. We preach the message. This word preach means that, it, it, the word here means an official announcement, a public declaration as by a herald, someone who is sent by God. In other words, this wasn't in words of eloquent wisdom. We'll talk about this later on in the book. It wasn't a, a, a laid out, a fine rhetorical piece of work. Right? Paul didn't come out with, with uh, all of Aristotle's rhetorical forms in his speech. In the message of the gospel, he says, I came as a herald. I just came pronouncing the good news, pronouncing the gospel, announcing the gospel. That's all I've done. I didn't try to, to get you to, to convince you of any of this. I didn't come to try to, to get you to, to believe any of this. 
I didn't use all kinds of skill to get you to think this way. I just pronounced it. I'm God's herald. God declares to you a message through me. I just pronounce the message he has given me to declare. God declares the cross. And then God calls believers. God calls believers. This is all God's work, right? God calls believers. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. It's to those who are called. That is, those who are invited. God has sent out an invitation as a sovereign God. He sends out an invitation. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the cross. But this is no ordinary call here. This is a special call. There's a general call that goes out. It goes to, out to all who hear the herald pronounce his message, right? But there's a special call that takes place, a call that takes place within the heart of a person. And they have to have this special call take place. It's an effectual call. It's a call of God's Spirit calling upon our hearts. It's a call of God, the Word of God working in us, the same call of God that called out to heaven and earth, let it be, and it came into existence. It's the same call of God that called out to Lazarus, Lazarus, get up, come out of the grave, and Lazarus rose from the dead and came out. And it's the same call of God that you, dear Christian, heard when God said, believe in me, trust in me, and your heart turned to him, it's an effectual call. God's call is a powerful call. It takes effect. It does its work. My word, God says, does not return to me void. It does what I set it out to accomplish. So the message of the cross, it's, it's God's declaration. It's God's call in the heart of believers. But then through this, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The foolishness that it encases our heart is broken when God calls us to trust in Jesus. Our hearts are hardened. We see the cross as foolishness, as folly. But God's message, His call through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the word of the cross, breaks that hardened shell. It does away with the foolishness that rejects the gospel. And it makes it reasonable. It makes it wisdom to our soul. And it's through the call of God that our hearts become alive and we trust in Jesus. Oh, it's the foolishness of the cross. It's the wisdom of God that saves us. I love Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the power of God. The message that we declare, there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. We proclaim the gospel message. We proclaim the message of the cross. God does all the work. 
He takes that Word and He makes it alive in the hearts of the unbelievers so that they may believe and trust in Him. It is the power of God. Oh dear friend, the message of the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved, those who are right now in the process of being saved, being renewed to be like Jesus. Let me tell you, dear friend, because of your sin, you and I all, all of us, deserve God's eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. We deserve eternal punishment for our sin against the holy God. But God loves you. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And to be raised again to show that your sin has been paid for. And today, perhaps you're here and God's calling you. You've never trusted in the word of the cross, the message of the cross. It's been foolishness to you. But today, God has made it wisdom. Today, God is calling your heart. He's inviting you, trust in me. Trust in my son. Trust in the cross. I will save you. Do not reject that invitation. But trust Him today. Believe in the Word of the cross and you will be saved. In this world, there are only two kinds of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In the church, there's no room for factions. There's no room for factionalism whatsoever within the church. There's not this group, that group, this other group. Those who are in the church are those who are being saved. We are all saved by the same God, through the same message, through the same method. And we, are all, we all have the same mission. To make the word of the cross known to the lost around us. That's it. That's it. Nothing should divide us. And nothing will divide us when we focus on the word of the cross. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Only two groups. Which group are you in? Some, you're in the group of those who are being saved. But I would dare say that there are some here today, you are in the group of those who are perishing. Because you, throughout your life, have rejected the word of the cross. It's been foolishness to you. But today, God has brought you here to call you, to invite you, to trust in Him. Surrender your life to Him today. Surrender to the cross. Let go of your pride. Humble yourself before His throne of grace. He will save you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of the cross. It pleased you, Lord, to, to bring salvation through the cross. A message that is foolishness to the world. But Lord, to 
those of us who are being saved, it is power. It is the power that is transforming us and making us new day after day after day. And Lord, we wait for that day when the power will be made complete and we will be made complete through your power. And we will be perfectly like Jesus when we see him on the day of his return. Oh Lord, we long for that day. We look for that day. But Lord, today you have us here on this earth to herald the, the message of the cross to a lost world. You're not calling us to do anything, to convince anyone. You're just calling us to declare the message knowing that you will do the work of salvation in the hearts of the lost. If we're only faithful, oh Lord, let us be faithful. Let us not be distracted by worldly conflicts and matters of opinion and uh, all of the things that we can get carried away with. Let us focus on the mission you have given us to love you love one another, and love our world through the message of the cross. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.